This audio session is taken from the Shofar Bible School first year course. You can register for the full Bible School course by visiting our Shofar online store at www.shofaronlinestore.org. The topic for this session is, Is There a God? It is part of Module 2, The Trinity. Welcome back to the second module of Bible School. And in the previous module, we spoke about the Bible the main source that we have of knowing about God. We spoke about general revelation as revealing God in nature, but then specifically special revelation, God revealing himself through his word, through his inspired word uh, to us. And today we get to the most important topic dealt with in the Bible, which is who is God? God himself, who is he? And um, here I just want to quote A.W. Tozer. He says, the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. The most fundamental fact about us is what we think about God. Now, everyone has a God concept, whether you are uh, a Christian, uh, a Muslim, uh, a Buddhist or, or Hinduist, or, or whether you're an atheist, whatever you are, you know, uh, an animist. Everyone has a concept of God, even if your concept of God that is that there is no God. And the reality is that everything else in your worldview and your way of life, your values, flows out of your concept of God. If you think God is both a loving and a holy God, you are going to um, say, okay, well, God makes the rules and we must stick to those rules, but he graciously applies those rules and he gives those rules not to... Um, block our block us and make life more uncomfortable for us and less pleasant for us but because he's trying to protect us so his holiness the laws that he gives we must obey them but they are given out of a heart of love uh, if you believe that there is no god then you're going to say well there is no god but someone has to do you know what god would typically do in someone's life you know uh define what's right and wrong and sort of be general manager of the universe and all that. So if God's not there, then I have to do that. Uh, and then you're going to make up the rules. You're going to decide, okay, you know, what's right and wrong? How do I supposed to, am I supposed to live? Um, and you're going to have to be general manager of the universe. And, you know, obviously, you know, you're not quite qualified for the job. So you're going to live with a lot of anxiety and, and difficulty, you know. So whatever you... Oh, how you treat other people, how you think about yourself, all of that flows out of what you think about God. And therefore, I agree with Tozer. The most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. Uh, and if you want your life to change for the better, then you need to change your God concept. Uh, you, you, cannot, you cannot change your life without changing what you think about God. So in this module, we're going we're gonna to talk about God and, and who He is. Uh, we, we're going to... Um, do what, what is called theology proper. Now, in uh, theology, you have lots of different sub-areas um, of study. You have the study of Christ, which is Christology. You have the study of man, which is anthropology. So you have all those different ologies. Uh, the word theology, theos is the Greek word for God, and ology is the word for word or study, um, means the study of God. So when we look at who God is, in general, we, we, we actually refer to it as, as theology proper, the study of God. But it's not just the study, it, it's the study of God, not just the study about God. In other words, 
God is a person. We, can, we cannot just sort of put God in a petri dish and study him under a microscope. Uh, we cannot try and just do a dispassionate study. About, I mean, you can do that, but, but that's not the idea behind theology. Uh, the, the real idea behind theology is more of sort of in the spirit of uh, a young man who's interested in a, in a young lady and studies her, but in order to know her and uh, get her to fall in love with him. So getting to know a person is, is different, and, and that's what, uh, what this is about. Uh, even though it's always been common for people to query God, whether God exists, whether God's there, and, and if he's there, who, he's, who he is, and so on. Uh, in, in recent times, it's become quite prominent in popular culture that, uh, you know, to, to, to sort of say that there's no God in a, in a very absolute sense of the word. And this is often referred to as fundamentalist atheism. And what, what they would say is that not only is there no God, but it's, it's harmful and dangerous to believe that there is a God. And the belief that there is a God should be publicly and um, adamantly combated and, and, and resisted. The reality is th there really is no such thing as an atheist. Uh, often, you know, these guys are referred to as new atheists, but, but the reality is there's really no such thing as an atheist. You, you cannot really know that there is no God. Uh, I mean, if you, if you just think about it logically, you just switch on your brain and, and think about it logically, how much of the knowledge in the universe do we actually have? Do, do we as human beings actually possess? You know, is it 5%? I think that would be very optimistic. Less than 1%? Probably. Well, if we possess less than 1% of the knowledge in the universe, isn't it possible that in the 99% that we don't know, there's quite adequate, you know, evidence for God? So, because we as human beings, we only know in part, and that's important to have that humility, that intellectual humility, uh, you cannot make an absolute statement and say that there is no God. That, that would be like saying there's no gold in China. Well, how do you know there's no gold in China? How do you, you, what do you need to know to know that there's no gold in China? You need to know everything about China. You know, need to know what's in every sort of Chinese lady's, you know, uh, jewelry box. You need to know what's in every, every um, chi Chinese person's mouth, you know, whether they have gold fillings or not. You need to know what's in every rock, you know, um, in every part of China to know that there's no gold ore somewhere there. Uh, so you need absolute knowledge, you know. So the only way you can confidently claim that there is no God, that, that, that you have absolute certainty that there is no God is by claiming yourself to be God and to have all knowledge, which is a bit silly and self-contradictory. There's another form of atheism, not fundamentalist atheism, um, but practical atheism. And often people who believe in God, uh, whether Christian or, or Muslim or, or whatever else, um, are actually practically atheists because they, they say they believe in a God, but they live as if there is no God. You don't see the reality of God in their lives, in the way they live their lives. So they embrace, embrace a lifestyle that denies the reality of God. In other words, the, the way the Bible would talk about this is that they have no fear of God. They have no fear of God. Uh, and often when, when, cult, when Christianity becomes cultural Christianity, nominal Christianity, um, this is the way that it goes. Um, that people would be Christians because there are certain benefits. It's good for business. It's uh, you know, good for, for 
family and friends and all that kind of stuff. Good to be part of a community, uh, but it doesn't actually change your life um, in, in any way. And then there's another form of, of, of way in which God is denied is, is basically practical polytheism, where people would say, well, you know, um, what, whatever's true for you is true for you, and whatever's true for me is true for me. So if you want to believe in other gods, then, then you're welcome to do so. Uh, and obviously, we, wanna, we want the freedom of religion for everyone to, to choose what they want to believe. You cannot impose something like Christianity on people. Um, but that doesn't mean that we always have to agree. So many people's faith and, and sort of the, the, the value of tolerance actually becomes a, a form of practical polytheism where people say, um, well, there can be many ways to God or there, there can be many gods, uh, which, which actually amounts to that. But a lot of people have, have basically denied uh, God. One, one of the most famous guys who've denied God is a guy called Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a German philosopher who lived from 1844 to, to the early 1900s. And, and he's famous for his statement, God is dead. And uh, he wrote a parable called the parable of the madman in which he basically states this. And I'm just going to read um, a portion of that for us. It says, Have you not heard of the madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I see God, I see God, as uh, many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then. He provoked them to laughter. Has he got lost? In, uh, in other words, they ask, one asks, has God got lost? Did he lose his way like a child? And uh, asked another, or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Has he emigrated? Thus they, yell, uh, they yelled at him and laughed. And the madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God? He cried. I will tell you. We have killed him. You and I. All of us uh, are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? Uh, what were we doing when we unchained the earth from its sun? Where is it moving now? Where are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backwards, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as though uh, an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing uh, as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing yet of the divine decomposition? Gods too decompose. God is dead. He remains dead. And we have killed him. Now, Nietzsche did not mean that humanity has killed God in a literal sense, but that through the advance of human thought and, and science have explained away the existence of God. So in, in his opinion, we do not need the concept of God anymore because we have better tools in science and other uh, things uh, at our disposal to explain reality, to explain what life is like. Now, the problem with this is that it embraces a wrong concept of who God is. Nietzsche's God and the God that he says is dead is not the God of the Bible. Uh, it's what uh, people call the God of the gaps. Uh, and often you'll hear atheists sort of railing against this idea that 
You know, we needed God to explain certain things that we didn't understand before, you know, advances in science. But now we don't need God anymore. But the reality is the God of the Bible was never a God that was used to explain things that we don't understand. He was a God who was real. He wasn't a God of the gaps, but he was a God of everything. Now, to be fair, this charge against God is often very well received because many people, religious people, even people who call themselves Christians, do actually believe in a God of the gaps. To them, God is only a God who fills in the gaps in their lives. He's not a God of all of their lives. He's a God only who sort of meets the needs where they cannot cope themselves. Uh, and, and they'll sort of allow him into certain areas in their lives where, where they feel he can add value. And they actually only use God as a means to an end. Now, to those people, these arguments are going to sound quite convincing, and many people will be turned away from religion and from God uh, by these arguments. But um, God, the God of the Bible was never a God of the gaps. In fact, these kinds of gods used to explain natural phenomena are actually the kinds of gods that the Bible consistently preaches against. Because in the polytheistic systems, I mean, if you think probably one that's, that's famous um, now, most famous now because of the Marvel movies, is sort of the Norse mythology. You have uh, Thor, the god of thunder. You have Hela, the god of death, etc., etc. So different gods to explain different things. So people saw thunder and lightning and, wow, you know, it's spectacular and it's noise and it's powerful. You know, it must be the gods, you know, so there must be a god who's controlling it. Uh, and so they came up with Thor, you know, the god of thunder. And, oh, there's death and we don't understand and it's mysterious to us uh, and, and, and we don't, it doesn't make sense to us. So there must be a god of death. So you have all these different kinds of gods to explain natural phenomena. You have gods of fertility, you have gods of, of um, you know, the climate and rivers and all kinds of stuff. And those are the gods that Moses and the writers of the Bible consistently write against and say, no, these are not the true gods. I once heard a debate between an atheist, I can't remember who it was, and I think John Lennox was the person uh, debating him. And he was saying, you know, isn't it interesting how, you know, God, the concept of God, I mean, God started near and then he moved away further and further. He starts in the garden and then he moves up to the mountain and eventually he's up in heaven and, and you can't see him. And, and he says, it's because we're discovering more and more and we don't need God that he moves away from the garden to the mountain to the heavens uh, and further away. But when you think about it carefully, that is not actually what the Bible says about, um, about God. In fact, it's in some ways quite the opposite of what the Bible says about God. Yes, God did start in the garden, walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the, of the day. And yes, he did depart from them. But he did so obviously um, not out, only out of judgment, but also out of mercy because he's a holy God. And he didn't want to, in his holiness, have to judge and destroy mankind. He wanted to show mercy. So he withdrew his presence for a while. But actually... When he came down to the mountaintop on Mount Sinai, for instance, he was coming closer. And in between, he was walking with, with different people, you know, like Abraham, like Enoch, etc. Um, and then from the mountaintop, he didn't go up into heaven. He actually came down further into the tabernacle, even closer. Uh, and then he's in the temple, you know, a specific place where, where the Israelites can meet him. Of course, with Israel's sin and so on, he eventually withdraws in Ezekiel his presence from the, from the temple and departs from them. But then in Christ Jesus, he comes even closer and he becomes human and comes and lives amongst us. Uh, and the word became flesh, John 1 verse 14, and 
we beheld his glory. He came, became flesh and came and dwelt among us. And then, through the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that God came even closer to us, not only among us, but actually inside of us. And, and we see God moving, in, in, instead of like that atheist was saying, away from us, further away, more distance from us, we see God moving in the opposite direction. God actually trying to, in a safe way, break into our presence and come closer and closer to us. Um, so the exact opposite of the God of the gaps. Um, but many people also overlook Nietzsche's warning. Uh, basically, Nietzsche is saying, you know, if we remove God from the picture, then, then who can know right or wrong? Who can know up from down? Who can, I mean, there's, it's, it's like dislodging the earth from the sun around which it orbits. You know, and, and he says, you know, are we, are we to be, uh, you know, um, dislodged from all suns and, and have nothing that around which our life can orbit anymore? And, and it's a good question. It's a good question, you know. And we, and we see sort of the results of Nietzsche's warning or illustrations of Nietzsche's warning in, in people like Mao Zedong, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, who were all atheists and who killed more people in the 20th century than all the other centuries put together. And we see when, when people reject God, like Mao Zedong and, and Joseph Stalin and those guys, then they are free, but they're free to do whatever they want to. And what they want to do turns out to be a lot worse um, than what God commands them to do. So, you know, the problem is that the atheist's cure is worse than the disease. Um, we see that when we lose our fear of God, it erodes our humanity. It actually makes us less human. Uh, and, you know, Nietzsche spoke about superhumans, you know, who, who determine what's right for them. They have no, there's no up, down, there's no right, wrong. They determine what's right for them. Uh, and, and, and if someone tries to block them, they, you know, they just overcome them because they're stronger than them. They, they overcome the weak. But that's just survival of the fittest. And, and that's exactly what guys like Mao Zedong and, and Joseph Stalin and those guys did. But we see that it actually doesn't make us superhumans. It makes us less human. It makes us subhumans when we lose our fear of God. The only way we can truly be human is if we know God and embrace God. So the Bible never tries to prove the existence of God. It basically just assumes it. In Genesis 1 verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It just states the existence of God uh, and assumes it. Um, but there were times in church history when... Because of unbelief, the, uh, the church had to stand up and, and argue for the existence of God. And this is called uh, apologetics, from the Greek word apologia, which means to answer, not to make an apology for. Um, and we see an example of this, uh, well, scripture that, that sort of um, explains this in 1 Peter 3 verse 15, where it says, um, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to give a defense, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Um, so there are many persuasive arguments for the existence of God. And, and of course, there are many uh, who have also made counter arguments uh, to that. But, the, but classically, there are basically four arguments. Um, we're not going to look at all of them. The first one is uh, the argument for, for, uh, from causality. Um, basically, it says that, that every effect has a pre-existing cause, uh, but then you have to ask, okay, what is the first cause that caused everything else? And that was the uncaused cause, which is, of course, God. Um, then the, there's the argument from design. Pelé's uh, 
Paley's uh, watchmaker is a is a famous example of this. He basically said, if you if you're walking in a field and you see a watch lying there, uh, you will rightly assume uh, any intelligent person will assume that there's a watchmaker because you see elements of design in the watch. Uh, and a few examples that he gives is he, he says that uh, for instance. Uh, you'll notice that uh, the watch has a spring that gives motion. It has uh, a series of wheels and gears that transmits the motion. Uh, the wheels are made of brass because brass doesn't um, doesn't rust. Okay, so the, it, it's designed that way. The spring is made of of metal, uh, of steel, because you know brass is is, is a bit too soft to make a spring. Um, the steel, even though it tends to rust a bit more, it, it's stronger and it, and it can work better as a, as a spring. You, you'll notice that the, the front has a, has a glass cover so you can actually see the arms and the numbers uh, underneath. And all of those are elements of design. And you would be right. Um, it would be rational to assume that because they're elements of design, there would be a designer. And, and likewise with creation, uh, you know, we see the elements of design in creation. Therefore, we, we can uh, safely assume there's, there's a creator. Uh, in fact, creation is proof of the creator, like the watch is proof of the watchmaker, or the painting is proof that a painter exists. Then there's an argument from Bean, which uh, Anselm um, argued for, and it's referred to in your notes. You can have a look at that. And then there's uh, the moral argument by C.S. Lewis, um, which we're just quickly going to um, have a look at. It basically says, the moral argument basically says, because there's a moral law, there's a moral lawgiver. If there's any kind of universal moral law, which everyone accepts, sort of across cultures and across time, then there must be a moral lawgiver. Um, let me put it this way. Uh, the moral laws are not um, what we do or what we want to do, but what we ought to do. That's moral law. And often, we don't do what we ought to do. But then we feel guilty. We, uh, and other people hold us uh, responsible, because, uh, which, which basically assumes that what we're doing is wrong, but that assumes a standard of right and wrong. Our, our, the mere fact that we judge people and say what you're doing is wrong, it's unjust, it's, it's, it's not right, assumes a moral law. The fact that we get outraged when people do wrong and perpetrate injustice and cruelty uh, does that. Um, it, you can also not explain it away and say, oh, well, it's, it's one culture, it's, you know, it's sort of cultural preferences because there are certain things that transcend cultural preferences. If it was just cultural preference, then it would be different for each culture. But there are certain things like you shall not murder, which are you know, accepted in any culture. Um, so not just what you want to do, but what you ought to do. I mean, even something saying like, you know, it's just a consequence of nature. You shall not kill, you shall not murder. Would you derive that from nature? With all the animals and insects and stuff killing one another? No. I mean, you, you derive what Darwin said, you know, survival of the fittest. You know, if might is right. You know, if you can kill, then kill. And yet, we know it's wrong to kill. And it's universally accepted that it's wrong to, to kill. And we feel outraged when people just kill uh, or oppress the, uh, the weak. So, these are all examples of, uh, of, of moral law. But... Here's C.S. Lewis's point. If there's a moral law, there must be a moral lawgiver. Especially if that moral law is universal, trans across time and across culture. There must be a moral lawgiver. You know, that explains why we as human beings are so consumed with questions of morality. What's right and wrong? What's a good life? 
you know, these questions are universal questions, but they, they, they would not be possible unless there was inside of us, built into us, some other kind of moral law, some other sense of right and wrong. Um, so, I mean, the guys who, who, who present this case the best are guys like C.S. Lewis and Tim, Timothy Keller and Ravi Zacharias, and we recommend that you go and read their works. Um, so, for instance, uh, in terms of just meaning in life, there can be no meaning in life if there's no um, lawgiver. Uh, there can be no justice. I mean, so often people would say there's no God, but then they get angry at people for oppressing the poor. But what right have you to be angry with people for oppressing the poor if there's no God? Because if there's no God, there's no right and wrong. I remember hearing a story of a lady who um, you know, was a relativist and said, no, there's no right and wrong, there's no God, uh, there's no absolute right and wrong. And then she came to, to Africa and she saw how in many African uh, sort of rural societies, women would be extremely oppressed and uh, taken advantage of. And, and, and she was outraged by it. She was angry about it. But then, you know, she thought to herself, but what right do I have to be angry about it? Isn't it just my Western cultural preferences that I'm coming to impose here on, on these African societies which who are, uh, in my opinion, oppressing women? And, and she realized, she at least was honest enough to realize, I don't have a leg to stand on. I, I, I cannot make that argument. So, in short... Um, the moral argument basically says if there are moral laws, if we have a sense of right and wrong, if we feel outraged when we see wrong, um, if we encourage people to do right and say, say to them, you ought to do this, then there must be a moral lawgiver who put it inside of us. Uh, and the moral law doesn't only have you know, intellectual consequences, that if there's a moral uh, law, there must be a moral lawgiver, but it also has very practical, everyday consequences. It determines how we live on a day-to-day -day basis. And all of us do live as though there's a right and a wrong, as though there's a moral law because there's a moral lawgiver, and um, as though there's a judge who will judge us one day according to his moral law. And uh, Francis Schaeffer says this, uh, says it this way, he says, you know, on Judgment Day, God will not just judge us according to what he said we ought to do. He'll even, even if he just judges us according to what we say other people ought to do, none of us will be able to live up to that standard. Take 10 minutes to reflect on and discuss this session's key Bible passage together with others in your class. If you are watching on your own, take a few minutes to reflect on the key Bible passage by yourself. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion, when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. You know, like uh, Nietzsche said in the parable um, of the madman, there's a sort of a slide, a degeneration um, that happens when 
when people deny God. About 3,000 years before, uh, ago, David also made the same point of the consequences of denying God, of saying in your heart there is no God. Now, remember last time we spoke in, about Psalm 1 and about the literary device of parallelism uh, and, and chiastic structure. We, we see the same thing here. Parallelism uh, is when a phrase or words are repeated in the next line to draw attention. And you get different kinds of parallelism. You get synonymous parallelism where the same thing is just said in slightly different words. Um, you, you get, uh, you know, parallelism where, where it's just slightly different. You get contrasting or antithetical parallelism where the same thing is said in the opposite way. Um, you, and, and then you get um, parallelism that develops a concept that sort of builds on one another. And we see some of that in this passage. So, for instance, in, in verse 1 and 3, we see sort of an ABC structure of, of parallelism. They are corrupt. A. Uh, B. They have done abominable works. Uh, and then C. There's no one who does good. It's basically the same thing. Corrupt, abominable works, no good. But it's, it sort of adds, you know, they corrupt. They, then because they are corrupt, they do abominable works uh, but not only do they do the wrong things, abominable works, they also fail to do right works. So you can you can see that that progression um, as it goes on there. Uh, and then it also says in, in verse 3, they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. So if you consider that parallelism, as you read the passage now in, uh, in class or by yourself, consider that parallelism. Also note that uh, the parallelism in verse 2, it says, uh, the Lord looks down from the heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Uh, and, you know, God, showing us how the progression of how we can seek God. Um, it starts with God himself looking down from heaven, us receiving understanding through the fear of the Lord and then uh, seeking God. Let me maybe just, just mention um, one or two things about the passage that might help you in your discussion. It says in verse 1, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Now, in the Bible, foolishness is not an um, intellectual condition. It's not that someone lacks intelligence. It's, it's a moral condition. It's that someone uh, lacks the fear of God. Uh, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, which is the opposite, of course, of foolishness. Uh, and then in the New Testament, we also see those first three verses especially, uh, you know, like verse 3, they've all turned aside, they've together become corrupt. There's none who does good, no, not one. We see that being quoted in Romans 3, verse 11 and 12 by the Apostle Paul and saying, this is the universal human condition, the problem with mankind. So um, what does this progressive parallelism say uh, to us uh, in this particular psalm? Um, not only about us as human beings, but about our the consequences of denying God. I'm just going to um, close first with, with, with this thought. In Psalm 14, it illustrates um, the link between the loss of the fear of God and the loss of morality. Uh, it's, it's a powerful example of the, the moral argument that if you start ignoring the moral law giver, you eventually start law losing the moral law and your moral bearings and you start straying away from it. And it's a good example for us of the warning that Nietzsche gave, that if we unshackle ourselves from God, if we, if we 
stop anchoring ourselves in God as the moral lawgiver, then we'll start drifting away in all kinds of dangerous directions and, and very um, harmful directions. The fear of law, just for those who are interested, refers to a, a radical, reverent God-centeredness that leads to wisdom. That's the beginning of wisdom. So let me close in prayer. Father, we just thank you, Lord, that we can consider your word. Thank you, Lord, that... Lord, there's mistakes that are being made today are not new mistakes, Lord. They're mistakes that, have, that we have, as humanity, have always made, Lord God, throughout the ages, Lord. And, Lord, the solutions are also the same, Lord. They're not new solutions. They're solutions that you've been giving all along. And we pray, Lord God, that you'll help us, Lord, to, to walk in your ways, to, to really understand who you are, Lord, and to live out of that. Lord, we, we realize, Lord, that the most important thing about us is what comes to our minds when, when we think about God, when we think about you. And we pray, Lord, that you'll more and more conform our God image to the truth of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Take 15 minutes to reflect on and discuss the following points together with others in the class. If you are watching on your own, take a few minutes to reflect on the points by yourself. You can find the discussion points in your Bible school handbook. Look out for the Living the Word sections in each session.